Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. Hey, and we're back again and the story gets more complicated than it looks. It is. You know, it's it's a uh, it's it's we're in Genesis chapter 14, okay? And in this narrative there's a there's a list of a bunch of kings all right uh verse 14 or ver, t- verse 1 sorry chapter 14 at the time when am amraphel king of shinar uh Erach, king of eleazar kedor lamar king of elam and tadel king of yerum these kings went to war against Oh my gosh, I can't even. Anyways, they went after they went after five other kings. The, so it was four and five. There. Wow, that saves me a lot of reading of awkward words because I cannot say these things. And for those of you who can, God bless you. <laughs> oh man, and honestly, my son uh, Luke can do this because he's you know he he went to seminary. He's our youngest son. I probably shouldn't tell you all this because then you could stalk him. But anyways, he has like more degrees than than anybody else in the family. Uh, just it just is one of those. He's just built this way, you know. But anyways, I remember him saying, telling us that, you know, he had uh, he had a Hebrew exam. I think it was his, you know, Hebrew three or two or something like that. He'd taken Hebrew all all semester. I think he was taking Hebrew one and two together. Anyways, it doesn't really matter other than he was worried about this exam. You know, so he's studying and and his wife goes, she just kind of looks at at the camera because we were on FaceTime. and She goes, yeah, he's making over 100 already. Like it was like he had he had so many. (laughs) He could have failed the exam and still passed the class. That's how well he did. And he, he aced the exam. And I was like, see, so like he would hear words like this and probably be like, no, dad. Dad, like, why, why are you doing this to these words? Because they all have awesome, you know, depth and meaning, and honestly, they're probably really fun to say in their native language, uh, and 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 would sound nothing like what I just attempted. So, let's just say, let's let's get around the the atmosphere of these words. All right. So eight years, eight years. That's what's happened between Genesis 13 and Genesis 14. It's been eight uh, eight years. Five kings of the small cities were in an alliance with the four bigger kings. In other words, they were paying taxes. They were paying tribute. They were paying for protection. And the four bigger kings knew it. And the bigger kings weren't necessarily even in the area. They were just, they were just kings of large... You know, huge realms, and in order to allow the little kings of littler realms to operate and pretend that they're in charge, they would pay tribute to the bigger kings and be like, you know, please don't come kill us. Now it's interesting that the first one that I mentioned in verse one, at the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, people who are way smarter than me and have researched ancestries and archaeological uh, findings and, and tablets, have determined that that is also the same king that we know as Nimrod, 
that Shinar was an area that Nimrod oversaw and, and that name Amaphel, Amaphel is the name that he would use uh, as a, uh, what do they call it? Um, a sub name. Uh, dag, nabbit, Bob, you had the word. Where's my engineer? Why aren't you helping me? What are you doing in there? <laughs> a, a pseudonym. Thank you. See, wake up. Good grief. I'm in the middle of a podcast. No, you're not. I know. I'm like five minutes, not even five minutes in. All right. So this was a pseudonym, pseudonym that Nimrod would use. So we're talking about Nimrod at this point. And I think that's important because of what happened. So eight years, these kings have been paying tribute to the four kings, the bigger kings, one of whom is Nimrod. Now Lot moves on to the plain. He is building a business, gaining influence. Uh, everything's going great. He's been there five years. Five years. He's got his. He's he's got life. Life is going great for this guy. He doesn't uh, really interact with Abram anymore. Abram really hasn't heard from him. I mean, he hears about him through the trade routes and the shepherds that you know that pass information around. They. They pass greetings to one another. I'm sure that that periodically, you know, invitations are sent, uh, but pretty much no indication that there's a whole lot of relationship anymore. Remember, we talked about what that word "parted" mean when he parted, Lot parted from Abraham. There's there's a distance that's definitely grown between them, but I believe Abram is hopeful that everything, you know, will will circle back around and Lot will once again be connected to God as as he was at one time. So it says uh, for 12 years they were they have been subject to this guy. Now now this the the other king that's mentioned is Kedorlaomer. 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 Now he's listed because he's probably he's listed first because he's the he's the leader of the alliance in that area. He's the closest king of the four king alliance to the area of Sodom. Now, it's I, I mention it because he's from the line of Shem, which means he's also from the line of Abraham, or Abram. Oh, Bob, don't mess up the words. All right, of Abram's line. So he's part of Shem's line, but he's in alliance with Nimrod, who, of course, is from the line of, of Ham, and Ham was, was cursed by Noah, of course, to serve the other two brothers, and so this uh, this alliance is really important to Nimrod because he's got one of the one of the line of Shem working for him, serving him as a as one of the lead kings of an alliance that oversees probably most of the known world. These four kings do. So uh, five years after Lot moves in, they rebel. In other words, they stopped paying tribute. They stopped paying taxes. Now, they knew something would happen. But I'm guessing with, with the influence of Lot and the wealth that Lot brought back or brought into their streams of influence, the, the amount of trade that was being increased, something about these five years of Lot being around, they had decided we've got enough influence, enough power, enough a big enough army, enough yeah uh, resources 
that we can stop paying tribute to these kings and let's see what they do. Let's see what now they do. They knew something would happen. They probably hoped that there would be some sort of conversation. They, uh, the 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 five kings here probably all had their own cities. They all had uh, they all had increased their influence. They all had their own pride issues, and they're saying to themselves, maybe we all align ourselves together. We'll have enough to push back against this alliance to stop paying tribute. Maybe at the very least, we can just be ourselves and not pay taxes to anyone for protection. We can protect ourselves. We're big enough, strong enough to protect ourselves. If we help them see that, we might have to have a few battles here and there, but but if we can help them see it even before a battle, we'll be okay. And I have a feeling Lot, well, not a feeling, I'm convinced Lot's a part of this conversation. They, they would not have gone into this rebellion without Lot understanding what's going on. Lot has, at the very least, a seat at the table when it comes to influence and elders and all that sort of thing. So all of this is going on for about a year. They, they stopped paying tribute. I'm sure they got messengers sent to them from uh, I, from the Keta de Lormer. I'm sure he's in conversations with the other uh, four, uh, three other kings, one of whom is Nimrod, sending messages back and forth, saying, what do you want to do? How do you want to approach this? They decide to go ahead and mount a battle against them a year later. They probably gave him some grace. They said, you know, if you pay us triple, we won't come. He just waited. They waited. So the leader, you know, of the alliance technically is Nimrod because he's probably the, the most senior leader. He has the most property, the most resources. He probably at some level is underwriting this uh, this battle plan, but he's not in. he's not present. Now they still, uh, you know, for lack of a better thing, part of the way you control people is through religion. And the worship of the idols that that matter to these kings is part of the way that they control people. They control their the when they party, they control when they when they fast and pray, and when they when they give you know everything to quote their gods. All of that is channeled back into the politics of the of the of the day. All of that's channeled back into the pockets of these kings. So one of the threats that Abram uh, brings to the whole region is this idea that there is one God. This monotheistic mindset, this Yahweh that he worships, is is something that would uh, financially, politically and religiously impact the culture of all of them. And, it, and, and the four richest kings are like, we can't have this. So they, they kept an eye on Lot. They kept an eye on Abram because the, they knew why they had left Assyria. Remember, Abram is discipling people. Abram is teaching others about, about Yahweh. He has an altar and a school that he's in essence teaching from. Disciples are coming. They work for him. They're discipled by him. I don't know if they stay a year, two years, three years, whatever they want, but they are they are hanging out and they are learning about this Yahweh. And Yahweh, the beliefs of Abram and the beliefs in Yahweh defy the culture that the four kings, especially Nimrod, has info, you know has has covered the earth in. Now. I think 
part of the whole motivation for non-negotiation with these five kings in which Lot is a part of is I think Nimrod wants Lot. I think Nimrod wants to fight Abram. I think he's still, I don't think, you know, I think he wants to kill him. I don't think he's gotten over the fact that Abram left him, that Abram took his father, the high priest and, and carver and maker of all the idols of Assyria. He took him with him and ultimately hung out, you know, it wasn't too far out of the way, but it was out of the way, basically retired, semi-retired, his high priest, and hung out until they died, and then he continued to walk away. And I think that 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 the death of Haran, Lot's father, impacted Nimrod as well, because it just at some level showed that he wasn't as powerful in 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 the eyes of of the religious world as he claimed to be. Clearly, Abram was far more powerful. His God could protect him from the fiery uh, pit. So despite all the years that Abram's been gone, God is still a threat. You'll find that, a, that God is a threat to a lot of people, especially a good God. I run into that often. When I start to tell people about just how good I think God is, you can see it rise up in them. There's, it's not that they get angry, but their, their theology gets offended. Because in their head, they have God that, a God that gets angry, a God that, that periodically loses his mind and just kills people. A God who will give you cancer because you walked away from him, because you were rebellious. A God who will give you COVID because, well, you must have done something wrong and because of that, you did, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to give you COVID for a couple of weeks and you'll lose your taste for two months because, well, you'll, you know, if you can't figure it out, then too bad for you. I'm not telling you. And sometimes, you know, God will just do bad things to you because he wants you to be humble. He wants you to just, just lay in your bed sick or injured and be like, God, you, you are just, you are holy and I can lie here and just trust that no matter what's happening to me, I deserve it because you are just and you are holy and you are righteous and I am a worm and I am a sinner and I'm a, I, I don't deserve anything. There's no way, there's just no way God does that. But, but if you talk, if when I talk, not if, I don't know if you do it, but when I talk to people about the fact that our identity is back at the beginning, not chapter three, that it's back at chapter one, not chapter three of Genesis, and that Jesus comes to show us our identity, and Jesus doesn't do any of those things that we claim God does, and he says, this is who you are, this is what who you represent, this is the way you should behave, this is, this is the power and authority that God's given you because your identity goes back to your creation, not to the fall. We look at that, and if our theology is, I'm a sinner, I'm a worm, I don't deserve anything, and somebody, somebody counters that, you can get offended and you get upset. Like, no, no. God is mean, but not mean in a bad way. Just mean because his ways are not my ways, and, and my thoughts are not his thoughts, so I only think it's mean. I only think it's rude. I only think it's, it's cruel, but it can't be because God is love, and God is good, and, and he does all this bad stuff because it's only in my best interest. I mean, it's it's so twisted. If we if someone was dating someone like that or was married to someone like that, we'd be like, get out. It's toxic. Get out. 
All right. I, you, yes, I ran down that trail tonight. Yeah, it, don't, it really doesn't take me much. It doesn't take much. You get me going down that road, and and I, it's just so, it's such a passion of mine. It's a passion of mine. Because I think, I just think so many people have been manipulated into submission to a religious mindset that just destroys all that they were, you know, all their identity. It destroys what God's created them on this earth to be and to do. And then it gets, you know, a lot of times in marriages, they double down on it because now, like, well, my husband's the head of the home and I'll just submit to him. And, you know, that is just straight. Oh, it's just straight from the pit of hell. So despite all the years of Abram being gone, God, this this Yahweh, this monotheistic mindset is still a threat to Nimrod and to the politics of religion and the money and influence that it brings the kings who rule the people. So in the Valley of Siddim, they draw the battle lines. They, uh, and, well, that's in verse eight. They march out, drew up battle lines. That means... It doesn't mean like in a one day thing, like they all, the armies kind of show up again. I don't, I, I know Nimrod isn't there. Probably just, just one or two of the main Kings of the four King Alliance might be in the area, but it's four Kings against five. Uh, the Valley is filled with tar pits, which I imagine is kind of like a, in theory was supposed to be like a home court advantage for Sodom because that area is filled with tar pits, and it's it's one of the uh, uh, anyways. It smells often like sulfur. It's it's just you know it's dangerous if you don't know where you're going. So I think it was kind of like a home field advantage, and they thought this this is going to be great. But when the battle actually started, right there was there was basically no interest of the four kings in negotiation. They wanted to wipe out the resources of these five rebellious kings. They wanted to take everything back with them so that these kings would know better than to ever rebel again. The people would, would push the kings, please don't rebel against the you know these four mighty kingdoms because we are not that good. We are not that powerful. So the, the, the battle didn't last long. And it says when they ran... Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, they ran, some of them even ran right into their own home field advantage. They ran right into the tar pits and died. And the others, you know, fled to the hills, basically leaving their resources behind, leaving their homes behind, their, their women, their children, their servants. They left it all behind with the idea of you go in, take what you want, just don't kill us, right? Complete selfishness. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their food, and then they went away. So there's a good chance that most of the taxes that they were supposed to pay wasn't necessarily monetary. It was it was produce. They would send food stores back to these larger kingdoms in order to provide for all of the royal parties of the of the kings. And when they stopped doing that. You know, it, that's that was a sign of rebellion, a sign of of we're you know uh, of of selfishness, and so they take all the food. So these guys, you know, you can come back to your city, but you'll have no resources to survive. But they carried off Abram's nephew Lot and all of his possessions. See, they didn't chase the people that went into the hills. 
But they found Lot and they took him and they took all of his possessions. Now, a man had escaped and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees, right? This is where he's been for five years now. Not with Sarai, who's at the plain between Bethel and Ai. He's living down here amongst the trees. Um, Abram was there near the great trees, a brother of Eshkal and Adnir, all of whom were allied with Abram. So these are just really good leaders in the area. Abram was estab had established himself down there. Everybody liked him. Everybody got along with him. And something just dropped off my desk, but hopefully that didn't make too big of a noise. Now it said, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household. Catch that. These are just men that were born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So these 318 men are the are the uh, the standing army of Abram. If you had any doubt as to the wealth of, of Abram, this is what you need to know. He had a standing army of 318 men. That, that means that he paid and provided for them to protect all the goods, flocks, men, women, and children of, of his tribe of his clan, even though none of them were his children, there were still a lot of children around. There were a lot of servants around. And he had a trained army of 318 men. That's that's significant. That shows amazing wealth. This is why people wanted to be around Abram whenever he was around, because he was uh, you were going to be well protected, well taken care of, and probably eat really well too. So he finds out what happens, and he says, all right, Let's go after him. Now, just again, a little side note, I just saw this, right? Uh, trained men also it means that they were disciples. So they were militarily trained, but they were also religiously trained. So their their families and the and the and the you know, in essence, the heads of the families were all connected to Yahweh. This was going to be a uh, <laughs> a good guy versus bad guy. This was this was God. At some level, people would have looked at this like God's army. They were all converted to a monotheistic mindset. They had all been born in Abram's household. They had been around for twenty plus years as as men. They were trained from childhood on how to be security, and then how to be uh, fighters. That means they would probably take out any of the common men who were just standing around with, you know, with, with spears. Uh, you, again, I know I referred to uh, Game of Thrones type of thing, or, uh, yeah, like one of those armies of the unsullied. I mean, they obviously that, that army was way more than 318 men, but these were men who were trained. They were good at what they did. He, he takes them out and it says uh, they pursued as far as Dan. So they went for a while. And during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hoboth, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods 
and brought back his relative Lot and all of his possessions together with the women and all the other people. And after Abram returned from defeating one of his relatives, Kendalaramar, and the kings who were allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavib. That is the valley, the king's valley. So Abram, this, there's not a lot of detail, right? It's basically this, this superior army of four kings defeats and routs the kind of upstart army of the five kings. They take all their plunder, which weights them down, right? This is this is just cartloads of of grain and corn and and wheat and flour and and they take all kinds of livestock. Like they're just now they're not an army. Now they are a transport station. And they're moving slow and they're loud and it's dusty and they've got they've they've got a lot of responsibility because the four kings expect all this plunder to come back to them. They've gotten reports that the you know the battle has been won, that the cities are back in submission, everybody's happy about this, and they're they're being pursued by a trained army. And Abram's with them, he's he's smart. They're riding in, they're riding in uh fast, but they come up slow. And he divides his army, so he flanks them on both sides. And they come after them. And these guys, they're not organized enough. They've got tons of material that's in their way. They, they're they they're on the road, so they're in movement. They're not in a great position. They don't know the land that they're in. And Abram's able to take them down. It says not only, not only take them down, routed them. He embarrassed them. And he chased them further. So it wasn't like he just did one battle and said, okay, thanks for leaving everything. As these guys are running, they're they're still taking as much as they can carry with them. And, and it says that basically he pursued them and defeated them over and over and over and over again. And as they would drop what they were carrying, he would collect it. His people would collect it and they carried it all back, put it all back together, put it all back on the road, repaired all the carts and started heading back to Sodom. And when he arrives, he brings all the goods, all the men, all the women, and Lot, all the way back. And the king of Sodom comes out to meet him. Now, the king of Sodom was one of the guys who had run into the hills. And even though he was soundly defeated, as most people who are in power think, they think there's really no reason why he shouldn't still be in charge of things. <laughs> so he's still the king. And he comes out and he meets with Abram. So, so that's going on. And then it says in verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God the Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to the God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then the king of Sodom says to Abram, wait, uh, give me the people and you can keep all the goods for yourself. So we have this scene, right? The king of so Sodom is out there. And then this king of Salem, we don't know, like there's so much we don't know about him because there's not a lot recorded. Now he's mentioned again in the book of Hebrews, again, as you know, the, the uh, high priest, high priest Melchizedek, from the line of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness is another another way to and translate his name. 
but he's still a bit of a mystery. Some think, well, is this like, is this a, what do they call it in the Old Testament when Jesus is there? Not transformation, not transliteration. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I should have looked that up, but do you know? Do you think that this is Jesus? There, there are some who really do. They think this is Jesus. And Salem, he's from Salem, which means ruler. And 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 it says, you know, he's a he's the priest of God, the God Most High. He blessed Abraham. Clearly, he's honored in Hebrews. Jesus is called, like I said, a high priest from the line of Melchizedek. He blesses Abram in the name of God. He makes a public recognition of Yahweh, the God Most High. He makes a public recognition that God is the creator of all things. But what's interesting is, in the Hebrew, it's not super clear on who gave who the 10%. Now, I, you know, tradition and translations and and uh, applications, everybody's like, Abram gave it to Melchizedek. <laughs> but it could be the other way around. Just so you know, I just, you can just put it in that little like, uh, I'm curious about that. I should look that up. Feel free. But I know that this is where a lot of people go to when it comes to, uh, you know, tithing. It comes to, uh, you know, what what people expect you to do at church. And I know that there was a big uh, fad for a while on grace giving. We don't give the tithe. We give grace. We give grace. It's grace giving. And what I found is that most people who are most uh, people that are most adamant about grace giving actually don't give anything. They just they just like no, I don't I don't tithe. I don't tithe. I I give I give according to the way God leads me. Uh, and fortunately for me, every Sunday He leads me not to give anything. So praise God. Uh, I just do what I'm told. Amen. Amen. But the reality is, grace giving should be way more than a tithe. Because if you give according to the grace of God, it's endless and overwhelming and generous and ridiculous and without concern for yourself. That's what grace giving is. So I don't care which which level you want to use. You can use any tablet you want, but you should give. And you should give freely and openly and with, with joy in your heart. And if it's 10%, give freely and openly and with joy in your heart. And if it's grace giving, then give freely and openly and with joy in your heart. But we see, at the very least, we see a pattern of giving honor. And part of that, the way that you honor is by literally giving goods. So, So where does Melchizedek come from? Well, he comes from Salem. Again, very vague. I go extra biblical on this. In the book of Enoch... I forget if it was book one, two, or three. I want to say it was book two. He talks a lot about the the flood and the fact that Noah and his family was rescued. But he also talks about Melchizedek that the, that Melchizedek was from a was from a different region and he had a had a visitation from God and God said, "You're not going to have to go on the ark. I'm going to rescue you." And he took Melchizedek out and put him in the in the 
spiritual plane called uh, Eden, where Adam and Eve had started. And that's why, uh, you know, not, not why, but that's the connection that people have when they say that Jesus Christ was from the, was a high priest from the order of Melchizedek, that Melchizedek was a was a not just a righteous man as in he his bloodlines were clean and he believed in God enough to avoid you know being uh, uh, a part of the insanity of the days of Noah but Melchizedek didn't have any children and so God physically just pulled him off the planet and discipled him and gave him a place to be for that year and a half or so and then redeposited him back here on earth, and he became a high priest, a ruler in this land of Salem. And he became a priest of the Most High God, the creator of the ends of the earth, Yahweh. And so in interacting with Abram, this king, this mysterious, uh, mystical leader of Salem, gives physical... Uh, public honor and recognition, not only of Abram, but also of God and what God has done, which is to create everything. He basically, uh, once again, brings everybody's identity back to chapter one of Genesis. He brings all of who we are and, and our destiny and our purpose on this earth back to the creator God, the God of love and light, the God of hope, the God of 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 mysteries that can be known and released, the God of goodness. And when the king of Sodom sees this, he also wants to honor Abram. And I think he tries to one-up Melchizedek. I think he looks around and says, whoa, all right, well, listen, uh, Abram, I, I too want to honor you. Um I would like to give you all the plunder. <laughs> give me the people, but you can have all the plunder, all the gold, the silver, the grain, the corn, the flour. Everything is that, that was ours is now yours because you rescued all of us. I think some of the <laughs> I picture some of the people being like, okay, like, uh, mm, like, couldn't we have kept a little bit of that stuff? Like, we're going to have a pretty tough year trying to survive with no food in the in the storage room i mean everything's gone king you just gave it all away to a guy who already has a ton of stuff abram's very wealthy why are we giving him more so i don't know if this was all motivated by plunder uh, and by by plunder if this was all motivated by politics or if it was motivated by honor but given the pattern of Sodom and how much trouble they're going to get in sooner or later here, I think this probably had a lot to do with politics. I think Sodom was looking, the king of Sodom was looking to make himself look better or more powerful than Melchizedek. And Abram refuses it all. He's like, he says to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I've sworn an oath to my Lord, most high God, creator of heavens and heaven and earth. He says, I'm going to give a little theology lesson to you, Sodom. I made an oath to the one God, the only God, the creator God, the place where we all get our identity from, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, 
not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Now, this is a far cry from Abram's approach to Egypt uh, five, six years ago, where he went to Egypt and said, let's do a little deception here so that I am blessed. Do you remember that, that verse? He said to Sarah, I won't be killed. I will be blessed if you lie. Well, do a little, okay, a little wordplay, but we all know it's a lie. He's, he, this, is, this is a different Abram. This is an Abram who figured out uh, not a good plan to provide for myself, much better to wait on the blessings of God. So, so he explains to Sodom, I'm, gonna, I'm not taking any of it. I literally, I'm not going to take anything. I'll tell you what I will take. My men obviously needed food to eat. They have eaten. And a share of that belongs to the men who went with me, the 318 people and to some of the others that went along with me. So it was more than the 318, okay? It was also the leaders or the tribes or the villages of, of Anar, Eshkol, and Merriman. He's like, let them take, take their share. I'm not going to take anything. The men need food. They're going to probably take, you know, a few bags of everything so that they kind of compensate themselves for the time that we were gone. But for the most part, you get all the men, women, and children back, and you're going to get your vast amount of supplies that also included, remember, the taxes that they hadn't paid the year for, for over a year. So all of that is done. And it says, uh, you know, that, that, that percentage point, what he does give to his men is a way to, that he honors them. Right, he honors them and their household and the potential sacrifice that they were willing to make on behalf of Lot. Remember, they went after these kings not because of any, not not for any other reason except for Lot. Abram wanted to rescue Lot. Abram wanted to communicate to Lot, God is on your side. Abram wanted to communicate to Lot that there is blessings beyond what you can provide for yourself. I've learned a lesson here, Lot. I mean, this whole conversation between Melchizedek and the king of Sodom and, and Abram was in the presence of Lot, and Abram refused to take anything, which was so different than Egypt, where Lot watched his uncle literally just, you know, just take anything and everything that the Egyptians were willing to offer them on behalf of a, of a wife who wasn't available to be married anyway. So all of this is going on in front of Lot, I think, so that Abram could try and Show Lot, listen, I've changed. I've repented. I've changed my perspective on wealth and blessings. I'm going to trust God on this, and I'm going to honor those who are willing to die to rescue you by letting them take their share. I'm taking nothing. This is, this is a great uh, illustration of Abram learning and from his own mistakes and then using the opportunity to disciple others who might have learned wrongly by being around him. It's one of, it's a hard thing for teachers, preachers, parents sometimes. It's hard for some of them to be able to go to those who are watching them, whether they be uh, volunteers that work under them, other pastors on the staff, other ministry leaders around them, or their own children and say, I, uh, I might have been wrong. Like you picked up some patterns, you picked up some habits in your life that that really came from me. I mean, honestly, I taught them. 
I taught them to you. I showed them to you. I lived them in front of you. And I look back now and I, that was, that was, that was uh, inappropriate. I've learned better now. I'd like to see you change your pattern and learn from my mistakes. And Abram's doing that here for Lot and actually for all those who are watching him. This is a, this is a, good, a good opportunity. And he took advantage of every aspect of it. So what happens at the end of the day? Well, stay tuned till next week, ladies and gentlemen, on the Epic Narrative. We will take a look at that because we will be on to oh, chapter 15. We did a whole another whole chapter. This is amazing. We are rolling on the Epic Narrative. Have yourself a great day, everybody. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. Hey, so time for some thoughts. Listen, I want to jump right in on this. So I made this, <laughs> I made a comment about wives submitting to their husbands and I didn't follow up on it <laughs> at all. And when I was listening to the, to the playback, I was like, wow, I really need to touch on that again. Cause in out of context, like it just sounds like, it just sounded really bad. So I just want to say in the context of what I was talking about, uh, is the idea of freedom. There are people who look at submission uh, of wives submitting to their husbands. They, they, there, there are religious leaders. There are husbands, male dominant mindsets that say, "You have no more freedom. When you become a wife, you're not free to have your own thoughts. You're not free to have your own voice. You're not free to have your own, um, your own context of life. Your own business. Your own whatever." And they, and they use the Bible as an excuse to say, God agrees with me. And I, I, uh, that's why I kind of, uh, yeah, anyways, it's, it's a, it's, I know it's a bigger story than just a few minutes at the end of a, end of an episode for me to, to, to give you full context, but, but God views men and women as equals. They are equal in value. They are equal in love, uh, in, in his love. They are equal in, um, in all capacities regarding the, the value that they hold. And to call one into submission to the other is not to take away that value and, sub, and, and sub, uh, submit. No, not that. That's not the word. To subjugate the value of that person to the other just because of just because of gender role or, or whatever you want to say and definitely God was not in favor of that if anything Jesus teaches us over and over and over again that he valued women equally and that became a cultural like uh, 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 ro uh, not rock a cultural uh, um, trippy uh, uh, a, a trip see, tripping stone what do I want to say Stumbling block, thank you. Uh, a cultural stumbling block to everybody who was around him, to the religious leaders that were around him, to the cultural leaders that were around him. They were like, wait, women are his disciples as well? Wait, women support him? Wait, he's... It. But one of the biggest stories, right, is when, is when he's on his way with the religious ruler of the village to go, to go deal with the religious ruler's sick daughter, 
and a woman touches him and he stops and it says, and he listened to her whole story, which could have taken good grief, at least 30 minutes, if not longer. And in essence, he was saying, she's as valuable as this religious leader who's a man. It's, it's a huge deal in, in God's uh, paradigm. And, and it has become a, a source of ridiculous traditions and religious, uh, religious mindsets to somehow subjugate and, sub, and, and bring women into, quote, submission. And what we've missed out on is, is unbelievable because women are so brilliant and wise and their perspectives are, 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 are life-giving. I, I can't tell you the difference it made in my life when, as a storyteller, a Bible storyteller, I started to read and this was radical in the, in the world that I grew up in. I started to read female theologians' perspectives on Bible stories, and it blew my mind. If you listen to season one of the epic narrative and you listen to the story of David, uh, you go through what happened to Bathsheba and, and the difference it makes when, when you just look at David's perspective versus her perspective, the idea that she was raped and sent away is a huge, a huge view, a huge stream of, of understanding on that, on that particular uh, storyline that most churches never get because the pastors never introduce the women's perspective of what's going on. It's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And, and I could go on and on because it's so, I'm, I'm very passionate about the fact that women get uh, an equal value from the Lord's perspective. And for so many years, they have not been given equal value from a biblical perspective, from a religious perspective, from a, a male perspective. It's, it's sad. It's honestly sad the way that uh, women have been generally and I know not everyone's like this, but generally they have been subjugated because of this, this mindset that I spoke about here, this idea of, of, uh, su uh, of submission. It's, it's, uh, it's been around a long time. All right, sorry. I, 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 uh, I kind of went off on that. I, I really didn't prepare much. I, I should have probably done more, but... I just want you to know uh, what, I, what I'm talking about is the toxicity in the context of today's episode, the toxicity of that mindset and how some women do still believe that if they get married, that, that, that that's their lot now, that that's their life. And, and it's just not true biblically. It's just not. It's just not. It's that you can't look at God and say, well, this is what God wants for me. It's uh, no. He wants you to be valued and loved, and 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 given the freedom of of choice, and given the honor of being part of decision making, uh, and given the honor to be a uh, you know to to make decisions, and to have and to take risks with the money, and take risks with time, and take risks with the building of things, uh, especially the family, if not literal buildings of houses and and businesses, etc. So yeah, God values you very much. And uh, uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. 
Oh, uh, just a note on Melchizedek. Yeah, it's uh, he's he is such a mystery in Scripture, and um, I think, in a general sense, uh, right? Some people believe he was Jesus, uh, and I, I dealt with that in this episode, and and some honestly believe that he was rescued from the flood and brought back to earth and and had interactions but either way i think you can say uh, for me he came from a he came from another realm uh because no one seems to know where he came from and no one seems to know where he went except for enoch and um you know like i said it's extra biblical in that it wasn't it wasn't a book that was released into the canon when the canon was decided by that you know that group of men uh, many 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 years ago I think it was at the Council of Nicene but um, <laughs> I picked up a raven friend here I don't know if you hear him in the background but currently standing in Utah having a good time uh, seeing the world but yeah Melchizedek uh, kind of came out of nowhere and disappeared into nowhere and that's why I just um, I kind of leaned toward Enoch's view that he uh, he was taken up and uh, given an assignment here on earth and he did his assignment and brought back to brought back out somewhere along the line um, but anyways I hope you have fun with that feel free to do your own research and uh, enjoy the show everyone looking forward to next week's episode on the epic narrative everyone thanks for listening if you like what you heard you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use you can also reach out to bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com see you next week guys <laughs>